So, Daniel, message 4, chapter 5, we're getting through. This is a famous story. This is an important story. Uh, and this is a pivotal story in the book because something big has taken place and changed in this story. So Nebuchadnezzar is dead. He's gone. He's dead. And there's been about 30-odd years in between Nebuchadnezzar's death and where we find ourselves in the story. And Daniel's kind of faded away. When Nebuchadnezzar died, he sort of took a back step and he kind of just blended in and faded in and new leadership and new leaders rose. There was about, scholars argue, between three and five different kings up to this point. They, they think, most of them speak about that this guy Belshazzar was king number four. Okay, so he's king number four after Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar reigned for like 50 years. So he was this really long-term king. He, he expanded the Babylonian Empire. It literally became an empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And he consolidated and spread out the empire far and wide. He was, in many ways, a brilliant king. Very intelligent, very strong military king, uh, but a ruthless man. But he's dead, and now we've got this, this King Belshazzar. Belshazzar, sorry. There's Belteshazzar, which is Daniel, and then there's Belshazzar, which is this guy. So if I get mucked up, go with me. So we'll just have a little look. King Belshazzar had a great feast for his 1,000 nobles. The wine flowed freely. So just listen to the words here because we use the text to interpret the text, and it tells us things. So we've got the king, we've got nobles, and we've got free-flowing wine. Belshazzar, Belshazzar, Belshazzar. Hedy with the wine ordered that the gold and silver chalices his father Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really his father. Nebuchadnezzar was very much like a, a Jewish person would say that Abraham's their father. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar was this guy's father. It wasn't his father, but in the sense of. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from God's temple of Jerusalem, be brought in so that he and his nobles, so listen to this, his wives and his concubines, could drink from them. So that's his wives and his girlfriends, his harem. When the gold and silver chalices were brought in, the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank wine from them. And they drank wine. Do you hear what we're hearing again and again and again? They drank wine and drunkenly praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So we've got a drunk king. Okay. We've got a drunk king, we've got nobles, thousands of his nobles, so it's a big party, it's a big group of people. We've got this king's wives and his girlfriends all in the same place, all drinking. You can imagine what the, the makeup of the room is like. And then you've got this sort of drunken king, and he's drunk because he's had a little bit of military success. He's had a few victories. He didn't do very much, Belshazzar, but he had a few victories, and now he is celebrating himself in this huge big party. He's got all these people together, and the wine is flowing freely. He is hammered, basically, is how you would translate that for the modern day era. He's hammered, and he's got everyone who's important to him in this room, and he's there, and he says, do you know what we should do? What we should do in our victory and in our, our place of pride, let's go and get the sacred objects from other religions and let's grab a hold of those things and bring them in. And let's fill them with wine and then let's celebrate our gods with these sacred emblems and sacred chalices, sacred cups from these other religious places. So you can hear in him is this 
big, loud sense of pride. And also, I think it's fair to say, insecurity. He's a man who wants to feel like he is a good king. He's a man who wants to feel like he is doing something big and significant with his life. I mean, he's following up from Nebuchadnezzar, who was the real deal. He was a guy who spread an empire and created an empire. And not only did he spread an empire, but he also brought all this culture back to Babylon. We heard in uh, our first message about him creating, and they've actually found this museum that Nebuchadnezzar built, so that his people from Babylon could see relics from all over the then known world. People could get a sense of how big Babylon was by this first ever museum that anyone had ever made. Belshazzar, in this moment of insecurity and in this moment of drunkenness, decides that in order to stamp his authority, in order to stamp his sense of kingness, he would take these sacred objects and defile them. He would worship his gods from the the sacred objects of other people's gods. To say that his god was the greatest by defacing and demeaning some other gods. And that's what is going on in this party. This is going on in this room. There's all these people disrespecting the culture and the religious nature of another group of people. And as this is going on, this is Rembrandt's picture of the king's feast, the Belshazzar's feast. Rembrandt drew this or painted this picture to try and get some sense of the, the arrest and the stop that happened in this room. So as this party's going on and as everybody's getting hammered, getting drunk, and as they're indulging, we see this, this hand appear and this hand begins to draw and write words in the plaster. You could imagine a room full of drunk people seeing that. I wonder if anyone knew if they were actually seeing what it was that they were seeing. And this writing happens, verses 5 to 8 tells us, this writing happens and the room goes quiet and the room goes dead. Belshazzar doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say. There is something supernatural, something miraculous going on and this room falls silent. And as he brings in the people that he brings in, the the science department, if you like, to try and answer the questions, what are we going to do? No one can read it. And his mother-in-law pipes up and his mother-in-law says, there is a man in your kingdom who is full of the divine Holy Spirit. During your father's time, he was well known for his intellectual brilliance and his spiritual wisdom. His intellectual brilliance and his spiritual wisdom. He was so good that your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him head of all the magicians, enchanters, fortune tellers, and diviners. There was no one quite like him. He could do anything, interpret dreams, solve mysteries, explain puzzles. His name is Daniel, but he was renamed Belteshazzar by the king. Have Daniel called in. Let's read that last bit together. He'll tell you what is going on here. Let's call the Christian guy in and the Christian guy will be able to tell us what is going on in this encounter. Have Daniel come in and he will tell you what is going on. We spoke uh, in the first two messages about Daniel and what made Daniel 
different was that Daniel chose a fasting lifestyle. Daniel lived in the king's court in Babylon and he could eat from the king's table. He could drink wine from the king's table. He had the very, very best that the empire had to offer. And Daniel chose not to do that. Daniel chose to eat vegetables, plain food, and he chose not to drink wine because Daniel knew that indulging in the delicacies of Babylon would leave him dull. Indulging in the delicacies of Babylon would leave him tied to them in such a way that he was not able to speak truth to power because he wanted something from them. So Daniel chose not to do that. And that was this stake in the ground for him because he was going to be different. And this allowed Daniel this razor-sharp clarity to be able to step into very difficult situations, hear from God, and speak clarity amongst the power. And so even now, Daniel's been out of service for 20, 30 years, but he's still known as the guy you call when you need help. There's still something about his lingering legacy, still something about the way that he lived his life, the way he conducted himself, that even after 30 years absence from the king's court, he was still known three, four, five kings on as the guy. Christian guy, godly guy, intellectual guy, intelligent guy, wise man. Speaks to what... I think we're called to be as Christians. What does Daniel do? He's called in to interpret. This is what he says. Listen, O king, the high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar a great kingdom and a glorious reputation because God gave him so because God made him so famous, people from everywhere, whatever their race, color, creed, were totally intimidated by him. He killed or spared people on a whim. He promoted and humiliated people capriciously. He, devoted a, he developed a big head and a hard spirit. Then God knocked him off his high horse and stripped him of his fame. You are his son and you have known all of this, yet you are as arrogant as he ever was. Boom. Look at yourself. Setting yourself up in competition against the master of heaven, you had the sacred chalices from his temple brought into your drunken party so that you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines could drink from them. You used the sacred chalice to toast your gods of silver, gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, blind, deaf and imbecile gods. But you treat but you treat with contempt the living God who holds your entire life from birth to death in his hands. Daniel steps into this situation, steps into the king's court, steps into a bunch of drunken people, and he speaks absolute clarity and truth to the most powerful man in the then known world. Daniel does again in chapter 5 what he did in chapter 1 and 2. Daniel steps into this scenario and he says, everybody around you is telling you what you want to hear. Everyone is saying yes to you. But the truth of the situation, the honest recalling of what is going on here is that you are being unwise and foolish. And he says to Belshazzar, you have got all the capacity in the world. You saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He had this time of insanity where he went off and acted like an animal for a number of years and then he came back and was more humble. And he says, you saw all of that. 
And he says, you now are more arrogant than Nebuchadnezzar ever was. And not only are you more arrogant, he at least had the claim to say that he'd done all of these things. You haven't even done anything and you're so arrogant. How dare you? It's this moment of truth, isn't it? It's this grab a hold of you and shake you moment. It's very similar to the moment when Nathan walks into King David's palace and he tells him the story about the man taking the little man's lamb and then eventually says, you're that man because you killed Bathsheba's husband. It's this moment of truth and clarity. That's what as Christians we are called to be and to do. To be those people who are able to step into these very difficult situations. These people whose meaning is coming from outside of the scenario. If Daniel's livelihood and Daniel's life was caught up in whether the king liked him, would he be in a position to walk in and speak that truth? No way. If his life and his wages were held on to the fact that the king uh, thought he was a good man, would he walk in and tell that truth? Of course he wouldn't. Daniel knew that his meaning, that his sense of self came outside of himself. His sense of who he was was wrapped up in what God thought of him. This freed Daniel to be able to walk into a very dangerous situation and speak truth to power. That is what the church is called to do. That is what you and I are called to do. When we see injustice, when we see people being treated poorly, when we see people being treated harshly, our role, our job, our mandate is to step in and speak truth to power. Amen? That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do in our families. That's what we're called to do in our suburbs. That's what we're called to do in this church. That's what we're called to do in this area. And it's a huge call. And it's a massive undertaking and it's so dangerous. It's so risky. We can't do these things if we are dull. We can't do these things if we are indulging and engaging in the delicacies of Babylon in 2019, whatever that looks like for you. Daniel was able to do it because he was clear. He was able to do it because he knew where his meaning came from. And he knew it wasn't from the king. The writing on the wall. God sent the hand that wrote on the wall, and this is what was written. Mene, or Mene, Mene, which says it twice. Tikul Perez, or some say Euphasa. It's the same thing, it's just spelled slightly different. This is what the word means. Mene, God has numbered the days of your rule, and they don't add up. Tikul, you have been weighed on the scales, and you don't weigh much. Perez, your kingdom has been divided up and is handed over to the Medes and the Persians. God has weighed you, Belshazzar, and there's not much of you. God has weighed you and there's not much of you. Can you imagine somebody walking up to you and saying that to you? And could you imagine them walking up to you if you had power? Someone walking up to you in front of everybody. Remember, he's got his nobles, his wives, his girlfriends, everybody. And this Jewish guy walks in, he's probably a pretty old man by now, walks in and says to him, you've been weighed and there's not much. That's what Daniel was able to do. The king hears this and gives him a robe and tells him he's great and gives him a third highest ruling in the land but Daniel knows what's coming and he knows that it's all over very very soon that night the king loses his life 
a king loses his kingdom. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Babylon is just taken over in a night. This is Babylon. This is the seat of power in the then known world. And the Medes and the Persians come in and just take it. Just take it. We don't read of a big battle. We don't hear. Apparently it was pretty easy for them to just come on in and take what they needed to take in order to take over the country. This is a story about judgment. This is a story about judgment. And this story is designed for us to feel uncomfortable and convicted because Daniel is a book of prophecy and the prophetic voice in Scripture is always one that turns the focus back onto you and forces us, forces us to take a good, hard, honest look in the mirror. Are you ready, church? (laughs) There are things in your life that you know are not right. There are things that you're doing and saying, indulging in, that you know are not right. The story of Daniel and the writing on the wall is a story for you to take a look at your own life. I don't need to tell you what it is because you already know. You already know what you shouldn't be doing. You already know what you shouldn't be indulging in. And you already know what you shouldn't be engaging in. This story is a story for you to take stock and say, enough. Because when we indulge and when we step over the line, what happens to us is we become less and less and less and less. And this is a story of a king who's all the authority in the empire standing there who's actually nothing because he's indulging his life away. And the more he does that, the less of a man he becomes, the less of a human being he is, the less of a leader he is, the less he is able to rule this empire and it's taken from him. That call is our call. What is it? that you need to stop? What is it that is taking your personhood away? What is it that is taking your character away? What is it that is taking your presence away? Because if we don't stop and look and take an honest look, if we are weighed and measured, the only person that can change you is you. And if you will change, God will step with you through that process. Because Daniel is a book that calls us to radical self-examination. We have the shining representation of that in Daniel. This man who is a prisoner, this man who is a slave, this man who has access to everything, yet chooses this lifestyle of intentional fasting to remain present. We have that example. And then we have Belshazzar over here who is indulging and engaging in all sorts of things. And we have the image of a man who is weighty, and an image of a man who is a shadow. And there is judgment at the end of his life. There is judgment for us. God calls us to live lives that are honoring to ourselves and honoring to him and honoring to our community. When we make choices that are poor, we become less. When we become less, we can do less for the kingdom. We can do less for ourselves. We can do less for our people. God needs a people like Daniel 
who are able to step in and speak truth in love, who know that their life is not tied to the world around them. The call for us is to radical self-examination and not just radical self-examination, but radical decisions and actions based on that examination. You know, there was a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, and he was a, a brilliant, brilliant theologian. In World War II, Hitler is being Hitler and he's in Germany and the, 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 the Nazis have taken over the national church and the Nazis were starting to write sermons for pastors and these sermons were sermons that endorsed the propaganda of the, the Nazi thinking, if you like, and condemned the Jewish people and, and pastors were preaching these sermons there was a small group of people in germany who said they don't want to do that anymore and they broke away from the national church and they started what they called the confessing church and the confessing church were pastors who would not preach the sermons that the that the propaganda people in the third reich wanted them to preach and dietrich bonhoeffer was one of these men and Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, if we as the church don't stand up and speak truth to power, then what are we? He says, it's not the grace of God. He says, if we don't understand that the grace of God is linked to the action of our lives, then we've, we've misunderstood grace. We've called it cheap grace. And Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is when you know you're forgiven, so you just live a worldly life anyway. Cheap grace is when you don't understand that your forgiveness leads you to live a life of repentance and presence and strength and character. Because if you say, yes, Jesus, please, I want to be a Christian and save me and forgive me, and then you go on living your life and look no different than anyone else, Bonhoeffer would say, you don't know who God is. Because if our engagement and encounter with the God of the universe doesn't transform our character, then who have we met? Who have we met? Our lives are called to be lives like Daniel. Our lives are called to be lives of different. Our internal compass is supposed to be bigger and louder and stronger than anyone else's. Then we are able to be like Daniel. Even in the king's court, he knew what was right and wrong, even when everything was laid out to him. And people knew of him 30 years later. That's a guy who knows stuff. As Christians, this is what we're called. This is what every single one of you are called to be as followers of Jesus. Our lives are called to be different. Amen? Our lives are called to be better. We're called to make better decisions, better choices. Perfect? Of course not. Is anyone there yet? Of course not. But sometimes we use that as an excuse just to live like everybody else lives. Our call is to be people who follow Jesus and that changes the way that we are changes the way that we use our money. It changes the way that we use our time. It changes the way that we engage in the good things in this life. Amen? <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, the call to radical self-examination, the call to making good choices, the call to having Jesus and his character and his spirit in us make us live different lives is one that is challenging and difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. Convict us. Lead us. Direct us. Give us the courage to take the steps we need to take. We're going to step into a time of communion now. As we
pass out communion, would you take the bread and the juice and just hold it and we'll take together. If our helpers could come forward.